Hokshi. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 318 is recorded live February 9th, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I think we may have a case of the plague going on. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I'm glad to be here. And we also have Kevin Ailes this week. How are you doing today, Kevin? <coughs> I'm doing most excellent, Darren. I would ask how you're doing, but clearly you got the crud big time, buddy. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I, I was hoping that by this time this week I'd have been over it, but I'm kind of still have it hanging on. And from what I've been hearing other people talk about, it doesn't sound like it's a it's a quick thing to recover from. Some people get it just a few days, and there's some of us who have had it for weeks. So, needless to say, I think that's going to keep me out of the water at work. They're saying you're not doing, you're not getting in the ice water, are you? And I, I think this will keep me out uh, between the congestion and the coughing. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'd hate to be underwater with a regulator in my mouth coughing as much as I am now. Yeah, with what you have going on, you 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 don't, don't even want to go there. I mean. Uh... It's it's not going to help you get better, you know. No. I mean, um, if, if it's hanging on like it is, I mean, I would put my main focus on staying warm and kicking it out of your system. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree. I mean, and, if you don't get it out, it's gonna you're gonna get it's gonna turn into pneumonia, and you're gonna have all kinds of crap going on. So, focus on getting better. Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have up is Canadian filmmaker Rob Stewart found uh, after the scuba dive. Unfortunately, it was not alive. The Canadian filmmaker, marine biologist, his body has been required, recovered off the Florida, Key, Florida Keys. U.S. Coast Guard confirmed on Friday that Stewart had been gone missing after going deep sea scuba diving Thursday or Tuesday. Visiting the wreck of the Queen of Nassau, he was in the area of filming a sequel to his documentary, Shark Water. The news comes after days of rescue operations and Coast Guard solicited volunteer help, as did film distributor D Films, which worked with Stewart and considered him a dear friend of the company. <coughs> Excuse me. If you've been with Searchlights, please help. A tweet from D's film account read, among with other calls for help and retweeted articles and videos about the search. His next film, Revolution, expanded Stewart's conservation efforts to an at-risk ecosystem, the threats posed by the world of environmentally and what young people can do to help solve the problem. Stewart grew up swimming and scuba diving. He blossomed to a love of marine, leading Stewart to study biology at the School of University of Western Ontario, zoology, marine biology in Kenya and Jamaica. So that's sad, but um, unfortunately you kind of knew that's what the outcome is going to be missing as long as he had been. Yeah, I mean, if they don't find the, the diver very early on in the search, then it becomes a recovery mission and not a rescue. It'll be interesting now to see uh, 
all the, the scuttlebutt of why and what happened. And then we have a follow-up on the World War II shipwrecks that are vanishing. Um, late last year, the Netherlands defense minister confirmed that two of its ships lost during World War II had disappeared at the bottom of the Java Sea, likely the results of illegal salvaging. Now a trio of Japanese shipwrecks off Borneo have likewise been torn apart for scrap, highlighting what appears to be a growing problem. As reported in The Guardian, the three ships, the Kokoshi Maru, the Higain Maru, the Hyora, or Hyori Maru, have been stripped down to practically nothing, collectively known as the Ushkan Bay wrecks, also known as rice ball wrecks, on account of their cargo. All three were within a kilometer of each other and have been prized by recreational divers for their near-pristine condition and rich aquatic life. The three cargo ships were torpedoed off the course of Borneo in 1944 by U.S. forces and may still hold remains of dozens of crew members. The incident bears a striking resemblance to the two Dutch ships' wrecks lost during the, the Battle of the Java Sea. In both cases, blame is being pointed directly at illegal salvaging operations. But in the case of the missing Japanese wrecks, there appear to be some complicity from the local university. According to the Guardian, scuba divers reported a large Chinese vessel known as the Grab Dredger, using a crane to pull up shredded remains of Japanese wreck, were likely torn apart by explosives and other equipment. Looters on the lookout for valuable metals, including steel, aluminum, brass, propellers, which were made of phosphorus bronze, are among the most valuable objects in sunken vessels, fetching over $2,500 a ton. Uh, these efforts, though seemingly arduous and insensitive, can clearly have a big payoff after being turned away from the site by workers on Chinese salvage vessel scuba diver Monica Chin arranged for a team of divers to investigate. It totally broke my heart, she said after viewing photos of the damaged ship. It made me cry. I just can't believe it. I wish these pictures were wrong. I wish it was not true. Another diver, Mark Hedge, says upwards to, eight, to 98 to 99 percent of the two wrecks are simply gone, describing one of the ships as unrecognizable, a heap of metal piled up into a ball. Shockingly, an investigation by Chin letter to the archaeological department at the University of Malaysia, Sam uh, Bia, the archaeological said the salvage work was authorized by the university for research purposes. A UMS official said the Japanese vessels contained three tons of toxic material that were harming the environment, a claim disputed by the divers, but after coastal residents learned of the salvage and filed a formal complaint, the university issued a letter to the company that it commissioned to hire the Chinese registered vessel, withdrawing that authorization. It would seem that either the university is corrupt or it's completely inept and unaware of what's happening at the site. As for the claim, the operation was effort to clean up toxic materials. That's dubious at best. According to international law, naval shipwrecks remain the property of their nations. In this case, Japan, the looters, even if sanctioned by the university, had no legal business dismantling the ships and extracting the metal without authorization from Tokyo. The government's position is to leave un- underwater war graves as they are if they have been confirmed that they contain remains of crewmen. A Japanese minister told the Guardian, adding the Japanese wrecks need to be protected by the governor of the territory where they rest. It's very sad that it's happening. It's sadder still the Japanese government isn't, isn't making more of a fuss. The Dutch, on the other hand, are launching a full investigation, disappearance of the vessels, and are still hundreds of World War II era shipwrecks and subs at the bottom of the ocean. <coughs> well, you know, like we said, it doesn't, it, it takes a pretty big operation to remove the steel off wrecks of size, so it's, it's amazing that nobody's you know, noticed. Well, you know, there can't be that many 
companies around the world capable of doing this. I'm sure they have to have a pretty good idea who, who's who's uh, snatching these things up. I mean, when they pull up and take and you know are clamshelling pulling up these boats, I'm sure they're there for a number of days. You know, there has to be you know ways to know who's doing this. Yeah, it, it sounds like that they've uh, they've gone from the first phase, which is just grabbing it. Now that they they kind of fake some air of legality about it, you know, claiming that the university had hired them, and they probably had uh, you know talked to some low level person at the university and faked up some paperwork. Well, yeah, the university may very well just be a you know a, a false company here, to just just a face just to give them the permission that they want for doing this kind of stuff, or maybe they make a donation to the university, and the university is okay with it then. Who knows what what kind of corruption is going on behind the scenes. But, you know, anybody knows, I mean, that when you've got war graves, you don't touch it. You leave it alone. I mean, that's property of, you know, whoever's, you know, the country that, that the ship had, you know, was registered to when it, when it was sunk. And... For them to stand back and point at the university saying, hey, they give us permission to it. I mean, obviously, they're just pointing the finger to, to trying to, to, to shrug the blame off. But if they find these folks that are doing it, that's not going to hold up in any kind of a court because everybody, I mean, yeah, okay, an attorney might delay a little bit and all that, but um, that's not even plausible deniability, buddy. You you know you did wrong. That, that That's why you're pointing the finger like this. Now, let's find out who's doing these people. And uh, you know, tur- tur- turn their ships into scrap. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting. Well, yeah, you know, I am I'm curious. Th- I was going to say one thing I was curious about. Though they're saying uh, those particular wrecks were in near pristine condition and rich with aquatic life. I'm trying to figure out how you're going to be pristine condition if you've been down there seventy years. Well, pristine as far as you know, that's a that's a, a relative term, you know. I mean, uh, they may have, maybe they're meaning that they're, they're like intact as opposed to being a debris field or, um, you know, yeah, pristine compared to what? To the uh, Havana? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I was looking at the picture of some of the scrap that's left on the bottom, and from the aspect of pristine, there's no life, no uh, vegetation on that metal that we're looking at there. So whether that's the results of having been clamshelled and sort of cleaned by the shell or not, but that there's no debris, meaning sea life, on that scrap where we're looking at. Yeah, I didn't see anything on there to look like it had, you know, maybe that is the ball, you know, that's what they they left or didn't grab. Well, yeah, because well, it's, it's interesting if you look at the first picture where it says the rice bowl wrecks prior to the salvage, illegal salvaging, if you look at all the, the, the timbers and uh, beams and girders, they're all covered. Whereas in that last picture, they're all clean. Well, maybe it's because the boat's been just so chopped up by the clamshelling that now you're looking at, you know, the insides of the boat, which wouldn't necessarily, or it might have been areas which were buried in the mud, which would not have had a lot of uh, barnacle and muscle growth on them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, because, I mean, it's clean looking. Still sort of sad, and like you said, how could you be out there for any length of time? And if a scuba diver came out and there was already a boat out there, one would have thought that he'd taken names, taken pictures, and then you'd be able to say who was out there at this particular time. 
Yeah, I would I would think so if it was that popular of a wreck. Yeah. I mean, and you know, th- these are going to be large, huge boats that are doing this. You're not just showing up out there in a, you know, in a dinghy to salvage these boats. Um, that kind of stuff, you know, you've got, you know, records and tracking and plans. And, um, of course, that stuff can all be, be faked and hidden, too. But, I mean, people know who's doing this. What you do is you put a big reward out there for it. Um, people know who's doing this. Put, put, put a bounty on these illegal salvagers, and, and you'll have them. And, you know, they're, they're operating illegally, confiscate their boats. Um, you know, that's and what, what they're doing is, is not far from piracy. I mean, real, actually, really, I mean, <laughs> it is piracy. Come on. I mean, uh, yeah, illegal as hell. Get them. I just sent, sent you a, a link down there. I don't know if you got it. Yeah. It was uh, those wrecks on Facebook. And there is a video. Sounds like a, it looks like a news person. And in watching the video, there's additional pictures of the wrecks that are quite interesting. So when they say pristine, now you got a better idea of what they were talking about. So that was quite interesting there. I'm taking a look now. See what I can see. Yeah, that Facebook link is quite interesting because it's got lots and lots of pictures that uh, we did not see before. Even though that one particular scrapyard look is a predominant one on this Facebook page. Well, how about this if you're walking along the beach? <laughs> Helen Frost 57 made a discovery on Easthead Beach in Witterberg, West Sussex on Monday. It was only made aware of what it was when she shared a picture of it on social media. Uh, the artist called the cops who have sent the object, which turned out to be a skull, appeared to be missing from the frontal region, uh, from above the eyes, the jaw for forensic analysis. Helen from Fishport regularly scours the beach for items to use in art projects, but was unsure what she had picked up earlier in the week and asked friends on Facebook for help. She said, we're out walking dogs and I saw it make art from used objects found the beach. So I'm always looking for things. When I first saw it, I thought, what is that? I've never seen something like this before. It may sound fanciful, but I thought it could be a shell from some creature from afar. I had no idea it could be a skull. I touched it with my foot and found it was hard and brittle. Artist Helen, who lives with her husband, Alan, contacted police after people raised concerns in social media. The beachcomber said the damaged skull, which appeared to have been discolored with age, was about 6 by 8 inches in size. Experts said it could be from the victim of historic shipwreck who was buried on the beach in an unofficial cemetery. <coughs> Would you just naturally assume a skull came from an unofficial cemetery? Well, water lines move and things, though. It's you know when they're saying unofficial cemetery, you know that's uh, in quotation marks here. So maybe you know he wasn't officially buried there. It's just um, you know it's a victim of a, of a shipwreck who washed ashore and was and ended up being buried in the sand there on the shoreline or. Who's to say he was intentionally, the person was intentionally buried there? All we know is we have a skull. Was there anything found besides the skull? Uh, not this time, but they said uh, since 1974, five human skeletons have been found where, uh, in this area of the beaches. Examination of two of the skulls found in 74 and 75 suggested they had been buried for over 100 years. They were both males in their 50s. 
A collection of 18th century buttons found in the same vicinity helped date the body parts, and local experts have several theories about the unofficial cemetery. It's believed that the bodies have been victims of a historic shipwreck or buried on beaches because local parish did not want to take responsibility for the deceased. Another theory is that the remains of a prisoner held in a ship in the harbor and buried in the sand rather than traditional graveyard if they died. <coughs> okay. Well, there you have it. Clear as mud. We don't know. I mean, it, it could, you know, so maybe it's an unofficial cemetery. Maybe they just wash ashore or, you know, I mean, unless they've got records of, the, of uh, this unofficial cemetery, they're really going to have no idea. Yeah, and it didn't look like there was enough of a skeleton to really do identification. And if it's old, meaning older than 50, 60 years, it's going to be hard to do any sort of tracking. Um, well, at least like, if they can figure out how old it is, they'll know if it was something recent, and that's where they could do something about it maybe. Well, they're talking about doing some radiocarbon dating on it there and something which, you know, with it, within the last two centuries here, they're going to get an extremely accurate radiocarbon date on that, so... You know, of course, even if they get, you know, the exact date of the deceased, I mean, what exactly does that tell you? I mean, um, yeah, it could be cemetery, it could be a shipwreck victim, which they're all addressing in this article. Um, but it's, at this stage, is not believed to be linked to any suspicious circumstances, but has been sent away for forensic analysis. That's what the officers are talking about. I mean... <coughs> The idea of trying to solve a crime here, even if it was a crime, you know, what are you going to do about it now? You know, I mean, the uh, perpetrators, everyone involved, they're all dead now anyway. So there's, it's, it's it's an interesting piece of history to find here, but uh, it just, it's going to be a matter of extrapolation. Unless you can find some records about a cemetery, we're just looking at it being uh, just best guesses and hunches, really. Yeah. Still would have been interesting to find it. Well, I, I think Eric's something. Eric sums up pretty good. Eric in the chat room just tells us he died. You know, it's they're not going to know much more than that. Yeah, and then we have oh, divers. That's going to go along with your next one, doesn't it? Yeah, divers pull a uh, tortoise skeleton from a sinkhole. An extinct tortoise species accidentally tumbled in the water of a limestone-filled cave. No, <laughs> water-filled limestone sinkhole in Bahamas about a thousand years ago. It finally made its way out. With much of its DNA intact, as the first sample of an ancient DNA retrieved from the extinct tropical species, trying to say the genetic material could prove insight into the history of the Caribbean tropics and the reptiles that dominate them. It could also offer clues of the region's future and tropics undergo significant uh, change due to climate. Uh, this is the first time anyone's been able to put the tropic species into an evolutionary context with molecular data. This is uh, according to David Stedman, an uh, ornithology curator at the Florida Museum of Natural History and University of Florida. And being able to fit together tortoises' evolutionary history together will help us understand today's tropical species, many of which are endangered. And it's an interesting-looking shell. I just wonder why they yeah. call it boundary-pushing. Well, because they didn't have any. Yeah, they hadn't had the DNA for that species. They said most ancient DNA has come from mammals that lived in temperate regions. Two things that are really good for long-term preservation of DNA are coldness and dryness, and tropics usually provide neither. 
not a very big tortoise. This uh, model here, this thing, is uh, the size of a football. It's not a very big tortoise. Big, no. Bigger than a box turtle, smaller than a, you know, like a tortoise we see at the, the zoo. Right. Yeah. Well, I was just curious how they knew the bite marks were from crocodiles or other predators. Oh, I'm sure they're just surmising based upon the environment. And then how about this? Uh, Belgian entrepreneur invites you to scuba dive to dinner in Brussels, uh, Belgium, pulling on scuba gear and flippers in the swimming pool. Nicholas Moonshart and his wife Florence are not just your average dive. They're going out for dinner, lowering themselves in the pool. They uh, swim from one end to where the restaurant await 16 feet below the surface. The pearl is a six-and-a-half-foot-wide white sphere tethered close to the pool's floor. The diners jettison their white belts before swimming underneath and up into the pool, into the pod that looks like a cross between a lunar landing craft and a giant spaceman's helmet. Food is served by expert scuba divers who deliver, deliver the foie gras, lobster salad, and champagne and waterproof, waterproof cases before leaving the diners, peering out of the portholes, enjoying the tranquility of eating in an air pocket, completely submerged. We are launching a new era of restaurants, says John uh, Bernertz, who founded the Nemo 33 pool in Belgian uh, capital a decade ago. The restaurant, where the underwater meal costs $106 per person, took more than a year to build and multiple attempts were needed to perfect the design, mechanics, and food delivery system. It was a wonderful experience, said Mouchart, 41, his hair still wet after the return swim in the warm 91-degree water. It's the first time in our life we ate underwater, which is really fun, a unique dinner. We'll remember this all our life. I wonder if there's like a food version of the Benz, if you, you know, I wonder if they, if it matters what you eat. Well, as long as you're eating that in a bubble like they are, I can understand enjoying your food. Until I saw the picture, I wouldn't know where they were in a bubble. Kind of an interesting idea. I mean, there's uh, been uh, well, that resort down in Florida where they'll deliver pizza to your lo- underwater lodging. So not exactly the the first of its kind, but uh, still interesting. And if you're going to spend the amount of money they must have on that facility, you want to try and get every dollar you can out of it. No, no. Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. Anybody get any uh, diving in this last week? Well, actually, we did. Uh, Kevin and I got in on a wreck. I don't think I've dove in over 30-plus years. And it's a river wreck, shallow water. And from the old days till now, it looked like somebody took a clamshell and basically dug out what was two original pretty good-sized ships to nothing but rubble down there now. Could not even find the uh, donkey engine that was on the tugboat. Now, do you no, think that was, was from the dredging that goes on? Well, the, when we dove it years ago, that whole embankment was a slope, and now it's got what do you say there, uh, Kevin? Three foot drop. Oh, easily. I mean, easily, and, so, and it continued water too. I mean, it's pretty sheer. So it basically. When they put that new wall in, they basically must have clamshelled everything there. Because back originally, when you took maybe two foot, you know, two, you stepped off the side of the uh, the mud into the water, ankle deep, you hit parts of the wreck. 
well, now it's it's a straight drop off by three feet easy. And uh, there were still lots of parts and pieces, and we were not prepared for the current that once you got away from the wreck and got back out into the mainstream of the uh, river, it got pretty brisk. But uh, we did take some pictures, and we had a nice shot of the boiler. Uh, looks like that was a, you said, the rudder arm and linkage? Yeah, Kevin one of those on, shots you have is, is the a tiller. It's either a tiller, although it's kind of a big boat to be uh, tiller steered, although I've be seen, I guess, there's some pretty big ones out there that are, that are tiller controlled. But yeah, um, just below that was the rudder, and I guess just uh, down current from there was where you saw the boiler at. And then towards shore, we found the, um, like the blocks for the, uh, propeller shaft and certain sections of that were still had really interesting mechanisms attached. And considering the first one was originally a, a fishing tug that had been stripped at the top and then under it was a wooden steamship. It's so intermingled now. I mean, it looks like somebody chomped it out and then spit it out. You really can't define which is which part. There was a whole section looked like um, a bed of nails, so it looked like it may have had covering on it, or it was the covering that was nailed down on, like a flooring. So, one of those wrecks, so you had to watch out where you put your foot because you would certainly puncture your, you know, go right through your fins and everything. Well, I and, think you, we were looking at two boats there though, because um, well, the, the tugboat, which the rudder was part of, you know, that appeared to be part of a a metal hull. As we can yeah. see it as we're approaching it, there definitely was a, a metal hull. Yet, when you're looking at the areas which had uh, all of the nails and pins sticking out up through the woodwork, uh, I was seeing knees in there. Now, not that you couldn't have knees supporting a wooden deck within a, within a steel hull, but generally you'd have a different kind of framework supporting decks than than tra- the traditional knees. And knees, in my limited experience, are usually, you know, wooden deck to wooden chine. Well, you know, it's, it's all part of a, of a wood boat. So um, I think we were seeing two boats that were kind of intermingled and, and crunched on top of each other there. Yeah. yeah. And it really wasn't bad. I mean, we had maybe on a good part, three, four feet visibility. Uh, Temperature-wise, it was nice, interesting. It was 27 degrees air temperature. We had a nice brisk breeze of 11 miles an hour, which gave us a wind chill factor there of minus 11. And the water was about 34, 35 degrees. Yeah, it was chilly, very chilly. And when you got up, you left your flippers while you're doing other items. You had a coating of ice on it before you got back to put it back in the car. So it was still a good day and a good dive, a lot of fun. And I think yeah, the two fishermen left because they thought we were crazy. <laughs> yeah, once they realized we were diving, they were just kind of shaking their head, and you guys are nuts walking away. But it, it's a, definitely a popular fishing place. We're seeing all kinds of uh, fishing lures and lines, and nothing I'd really consider to be much of an entanglement issue, but you could certainly see where they, they left their share of gear on that boat. And it would be interesting to get back out a little further in the current when the current maybe subsides a little bit or we go out prepared to um, attach ourselves to the bottom a little bit. Yeah, yeah I, I was not expecting Go ahead, Darren. I was going to say, I was wondering if they, when they put the seawall in, did they take the boiler and bring it ashore or did they just kind of go, ick, what's this, and then drop it in the, the deeper section? Well, if they had a clamshell, they could have brought that stuff up and just 
got rid of the scrap for metal scrap. They could have made a little more money. Yeah, because that, that's that's a good size hunk of boiler, hunk of metal. That boiler, I didn't actually see it myself, but I've seen your pictures of it there. And um, yeah, there's a, quite a bit of metal that they left behind down there. Yeah, and off way off to the left, though, it looks like it's part of a smokestack too. It's laying in the in the side, but it's really covered with sand. Yeah, I think and, I, I just want to go back out there, but go quite a bit heavier, a little bit more prepared to uh, deal with the current. Um, and do a little bit more investigating because although that current probably does get quite brisk, I'm sure you noticed it as well that once you got past the boat, it's nothing but very thoroughly swept sand. Oh, yeah. um, not, not not much hangs around down there. In fact, the whatever is out there, that boat may very well have been taken down current too. Yeah. Now you were you were finding what two and a half gallon plastic containers full of concrete. Yeah, there were a number looked to be about three gallon size um, plastic barrels that were uh, full of concrete with real heavy chain on them. Looked like, I, when I saw the first one, I thought they were maybe lost fishermen's anchors, but then I realized there was a group of, you know, probably five of them in the same area. And the real heavy-duty chain, not not the cheap hardware stuff you get to make it, you know, to attach your uh, your line to, so, you know, pretty valuable chain. And I'm curious about where that came from and why, because I don't, you know, that's relatively recent, so... It's going to be worth another dive out there just to look around. Yeah, I just want to go back out there. In fact, there's a there's a, another boat that's not too far from there. Um, I've got one uh, shows on my hummingbird chart that's uh, oh down towards the bridge from there, where we've seen guys fishing quite a bit. And last fall, I went up there. Um, I think I had robbed my boat. We coming back from a dive or something. We were kind of just putzing around up there looking to see what was in the river. And the, uh, you know, you can see on the side scan, there definitely were a lot of boards and things in the water, but it was so, I don't know, weedy and murky that you really couldn't see much beyond that. But this would be a good time of year to go back to that. Yeah, but that'll be a boat dive because I did uh, check out the area, take pictures, and there really isn't any place to legally park there. Okay. Well, there's a lot of guys fishing down there off the shore from time to time. There's got to be some way to get in down there. Of course, if we have to take the kayaks in, we take the kayaks down there and do it, you know. So. Well, I mean, access, I mean, you can park right under the bridge and you're there. Um, but I'm just saying the three big signs that say keep the hell out. And I think they're they're talking more of around the bridge from the security aspect, I believe. Anyway, well, we're going to get back out there and talking about diving. Did you have something planned for ice diving this weekend? Well, I haven't officially canceled it, but it's not looking real good. Um, I don't. I, I kind of put some feelers out there on the on the on the mud club page to see who was interested and had quite a bit of interest in a potential ice dive this weekend because we're seeing the ice coming back pretty fast. But went out and did a little bit of recon to uh, check out the ice conditions. And I uh, was noticing, I'm not seeing any ice fishermen out. And usually those guys go out long before we do. And yeah, If they're not out there, we shouldn't be out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I went and took my, oh, took my auger, my tape measure, and uh, I couldn't even get on the ice. You know, the ice is only about an inch thick. I mean, it, it, it looks good from the, from the shore, but no, there's, there's nothing to it. And we're not going to have conditions to, uh, you know, make good ice for a while. In fact, we may even lose a little bit of what we have. It's going to get down in the teens tonight, 
but then um, you know it's not going to get below freezing for a couple of days. So we're going to lose we're going to lose what we have. So um, I called a couple of bait shops um, asking for you know what the ice conditions were. And actually, most of your bait shops, they legally cannot tell you the ice is safe. They can't do that. But they will tell you, well, there are guys out fishing on, you know, this lake over here. They're, they're getting fish. They won't tell you that it's safe, but they'll say where they're ice fishermen at. And there's no one ice fishing in this area. Not only that, but the people who want to ice fish are road tripping up to Higgins Lake, which is about two hours north of here, to do that. So uh, part of... You know, one of, the, one of the benefits of doing those cell phone recoveries I did last back in January was you know, getting a lot of ice fishermen on my Facebook and seeing, yep, these guys are all going north now. So no ice dive in the immediate future for us, I'm afraid. Well, still a possibility for the river. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were several people who were interested. I think we had uh, Rob and Ted, and there was a guy by the name of Mike. Haven't met them yet, but yeah, we, we've got a handful of people. You know, uh, you want to put something together for uh, Sunday morning? Uh, I will see what my schedule is for Sunday. I was thinking more of Saturday myself, but uh, we can do that. Uh, same place as last week. Yeah, if if you've got more of a consensus for uh, Saturday, go ahead. I I can't do Saturday. I I got drafted to work this week, but. If uh, yeah, let's go ahead and make a post on the on the page about uh, who, uh, who wants to dive this weekend, and take it back up to that up to that wreck. Um, we might want to check the current. We had we've we had an awful lot of rain yesterday. Um, yeah, two inches. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to drag a bunch of people out there if we've got a you know eight mile an hour current coming through there too. Yeah, dri- so, driving by Hickory Creek today, that was. Uh, you know, all the branches and trees that are across the creek, the water was over them, and you could see uh, foam collecting on the shore. So it's really ripping through there. Okay, I'll do a recon tomorrow, see what uh, what it looks like, and then I'll make a post based on what I find on the recon. Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the, the stuff with the second dive, you know, there's enough boat out there. I mean, what would you say the length on that thing was? I'm I'm thinking that thing was at least 60 feet long. It's a good-sized boat out there. What do you think? Originally, yes. <laughs> now I'm not sure. Well, there was a. I was following the starboard shine. I'm saying starboard shine based upon, you know, we know where the stern is with the rudder. Um, you know, and that, that shine went quite a ways up, up river, and I never actually did find a definitive bow. Um, it just kind of ended, and it wasn't really anything to indicate that it was part of the bow. It was just no more boat. Um, there could be substantially more of that boat out there further than the river. It might be down more, more towards the pilings where those guys are fishing at. Um, you know, I don't I know. Remember I, when I came up and we were, t- when I came up near the shoreline and was talking to you? Yeah. My feet were on the, there's a section that comes almost up to the surface there. Uh, it looks like the bow there. I thought you were more towards the stern when you were talking to me there. Oh, so. that was up, that's right there by the by the wall. That was the highest part of the wreck was there too. Okay. Well, you know, I, clearly there's quite a bit of quite a bit of boat out there. It would be yes. worthwhile to get, you know, several divers out there, you know, maybe we ought to map this thing, you know. I mean, uh you think about it, uh 
this could certainly be one of our fallback wrecks. You know, we have so many days when we, we, we want to dive the big water and can't because the weather, and this looks to be a pretty easy, I mean, you don't get a much easier dive than a shore dive in a river for a, for a shipwreck. You know? <laughs> so, no. I mean, I think I had a max depth that day of about, what, 11 feet? What did, what did you have? Maybe 15 because I went out, out toward the river bottom a little bit. Okay. Um, there's some nice bottles out there, too, by the way. So people want to look around. There are some bottles. So, And, matter of fact, one of the bottles will be posted on probably the club site tomorrow. I did get that one cleaned. It's very nice. Okay. So you get the, the privilege of having the first treasure of the year and a bottle of all things. Okay. All right. Well, so be it. Excellent. We'll get her going. Cool. Well, Mac, do you have a safety story of the week? Well, I'm not sure if it's a story or not, but uh, I was going through looking at items that I think are somewhat interesting. And one I came across was the notation here that at least 40% of all the Dan medical calls and emails are about what topic? What do you think? I would say the Benz. Okay, what do you think, Kevin? Uh, well, Darren already took the Benz, so I'm going to say um, lung, uh, lung overexpansion injuries. <laughs> it's the ear. Ear oh. issues are forty percent of the calls. Really? Huh. Now they're talking about pressure equalization in the middle ear is the most important skill for divers. And they said if it's not mastered properly, divers will get injured and sometime permanently disabled. Says so in divers with a with healthy ears, ear barotrauma is preventable, and all divers should be investing the time and effort to master equalization techniques. Now, what I thought was interesting, it also talked about common items. One of the first items a lot of people have with ear issues is vertigo. And being underwater, especially any kind of depth, I don't think you want to be having vertigo, especially if you're not hanging on to an anchor line. And they were very explicit about talking about that if you had an upper respiratory tract infection, if you've got hay fever, allergies, they also had if you're snorting drugs, that's not contrary, uh, cigarette smoking, what you're basically doing is screwing up the aspects for your ear, being able to equalize. And I didn't realize they had so many different techniques, and they listed six of them, seven of them. And a couple of them are easy. One is passive, which is requiring no effort, and it occurred during a, during ascent. And as I think about it, do you normally consciously think of equalizing when you come up? I don't. I just I never thought about it. So I must be coming up, you know, not fast, but at such a rate that I don't, do not have any adverse aspects on the ears. The second one was what they call voluntary tubal opening. And that's the one where they say, move your jaws around and try yawning. And they said that technique alone works for 30% of divers or more. The third one is the one you taught most, most likely is the Valsalvo maneuver where you pinch your nostrils and blow gently. That's the only one that really works for me. Then a fourth one is called the Toyambi, T-O-Y-N-B-E-E. And it says, pinch your nostrils and swallow. And they said, that's a good one. So if you're ascending and start to have any issues, try that. And I, I don't believe I've ever tried that. So I'm going to have to see what that does for me. Uh, the next one is called the Frenzel Maneuver. And this starts getting like, can you walk and chew gum? It says, pinch your nostrils while contracting your throat muscles and make the sound of the letter K. 
Now, I personally don't know anybody who's ever done that or will admit ever doing that, and I couldn't remember to do that. The other one was the Lowry technique, where this is pinch your nostrils, try gently to blow air out of your nose while swallowing. So like they said, here it is, Valsalvo maneuver meets, or meets the uh, toy beam maneuver. And then the last one they had is called the Edmonds technique, where you push your jaw forward and ploy the Valsalvo maneuver or the Frenzo maneuver. So I just like to pinch my nose and blow my ears, and I hope that works. In a hard hat, I always had a nose pad that I could put my nose against, block it, clear my ears easy. So of those items, have anybody done something different than just pinching your nose? Well, for me, no. I, I, have, I have to do the Valsavo maneuver. That's the only one that works for me. And I only have to do it going down, coming up. I'm the same way. I, I come up slow enough to where it equalizes on its own. I How generally you, do the uh, jaw wiggle, uh-huh. and I you know like I know I I've, I've done done the the uh, pinching the nose as well, but when I was doing the uh, chamber dive last year, that's when you you get in a hyperbaric chamber and they simulate going into a 110 feet or 150 feet in this case. Um, I experiment a little bit because there's a a whistling tone, and when when they're when the when the chamber's going down. Oh, well, being pressurized, they're taking you down pretty fast, and that that tone changes so rapidly because of the uh, difference in the pressure in or inside and outside your ears that you actually have, you know you know you have to uh, pinch your nose and pressure quite quite rapidly. And I found that, at least for me, I was actually do, doing a much more effective clearing by wiggling my jaw than by pinching my nose. Yeah, and I have tried the the, the jaw maneuver. And I do notice that when I start to go up north and I'm going to do a lot of diving, especially deeper diving, I practice basically by doing my nose while I'm on the surface a couple of days before and get used to clearing the ears. Plus, it exercises the station tubes by making them flex. Mm -hmm. They talked about the tips for equalization, and basically I do all of these when I can. It says, one, prior to descent, while you're neutrally buoyant, no air in your BC, and you're just ready to go down, inflate your ears with one of the techniques. May I do it on the boat before I get in and then in the water? Um, the second is descend feet first if possible. And what that does is allow the air to travel upwards into the station tube and the middle ear, which is more normal than if you go down head first. It said use a descent line or anchor line to control the speed of descent. Inflate your ears gently every few feet for the first 10 or 15, and once I get past 15, I'm good to go. And the no-brainer one is pain is not acceptable. If there's pain, you need to get your butt back up. Uh, Again, they say if you're starting to have pain, don't be macho and try to force it because you're really doing some damage down there, and you you really don't want to be doing that. They also talked about everybody reacts different to different medications, they're talking about decongestants, nasal spray, uh, sprays may be used prior to a dive to reduce swelling. But it's something you should have been using on the surface before you try to use it underwater to see if you have any adverse effects. They also well, said you got to use that nasal spray about 30 minutes before the descent. And usually, you know, they usually last about 12 hours, as I said, when you're using them. I've got some advice here from the chat room. Um, Eric's talking about... Uh, Pre-charge of the surface helps. I presume he's talking about uh, 
you know, plugging the nose and clearing the tube, clearing the tubes on the surface there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I as well have never really thought about doing it uh, on the ascent. It just seems to work naturally there, which is something which we never really were pushed in class. So, uh, you know, they do tell you to be aware of it if you start getting pain in your ears going up that you may have to uh, stop and, um, you know, plug your nose and, and try as you're going up because, you know, you can have what's called a, uh, reverse, a reverse lock where that is as you're coming up, for some reason, you're not able to clear. You know, um, that comes sometimes from coming up too fast. If you are coming up too fast, um, actually the pressure in the ears can, believe it or not, can, can plug up the station tubes. You may have to go back down a little bit and kind of relieve some of the pressure, well, relieve some of the pressure imbalance and play with it a little bit. So, so the whole item was... Obviously, it's a big issue because if they get 40% of their calls, well, I have ear aches or I have ear issues, that's significant. Yep, that is. Watch yourself before you get in the water. Practice and equalize whichever way is best for you and practice it before you start doing any deep diving. The other item they also mentioned, though, was cold water has an effect on it. How anxious you are also makes a difference. But you you don't want to overdo it. you know, last summer I started getting a little bit of tinnitus and did a little bit of reading up on it there. Tinnitus is when you get that, that ringing in your ears. And uh, apparently it's a pretty common issue with divers. And one thing which really aggravates it, and it can even bring it on, I guess, from what I've read, and there's a lot of different opinions on it there, but uh, over-equalizing, you know, if you are plugging your nose and blowing too hard, uh, some believe that brings on tinnitus or aggravates it. I've been more cautious about uh, less, less zealous in my equalizing since then um, and taking a little bit of a, of a to take a vitamin for it as well and uh, got it well under control now, but there's some times it was getting pretty aggravating. Yeah, the other items they were talking about when they are talking about the ears uh, was, of course, swimmer's ear, swimmer's itch in the, in the ears. And uh, they're saying a lot of times if you know you're going to be impacted by something like that, use the ear materials. I mean, that homemade version of boil water and put a lot of salt in it. Use that. Works to keep anything from growing in your ears or use that swimmer's ear liquid you can buy at the dive shop. Yeah, that's just a lot of places. Yeah, alcohol, 50% alcohol and 50% vinegar makes a heck of a good one. Or if nothing else, there's always some Jack Daniels in the boat somewhere. Of course, there's, there's better orifices to put it in than your ears. <laughs> yeah. But take care of your ears, guys and gals. Oh, one, one item I just remembered about that. If your hood sometimes is too tight on your ears, sometimes you have to sort of let a little water in. It's almost like if you had your fingers in the ear and try to go down, that's not going to work. It's almost like having earplugs in. So that's another that. item or caution to take a look at. <laughs> Very good information. Yep. What about the shipwreck stuff? You got something for us there? Well, tonight's uh, featured shipwreck. I'm doing something out of Milwaukee this time. Let me get this pasted in the chat room here. We're going to talk about the uh, Prince William 5. It's a nice uh, sport depth wreck over out of Milwaukee. I dove that two two years ago off of uh, Jake Hanukkah's boat who actually will be our guest next week. Um, it's, it's a really cool dive. It's um, 90 feet to the bottom, 50, 56 feet to the high point in the wreck. 
I'm taking the information here off of uh, shipwreckexplorers.com, and they have uh, details about the different uh, shipwrecks in the area. In this case, Prince William V. Prince William V, it's, it's spelled P-R-I-N-S, William, W-I-L-L-E-M, and it's a, it's a Roman numeral for five, which is a V. And Great Lake Ship Explorers has to say, known as the Willie, this is the one of the most popular wrecks in Milwaukee. She lies intact on its starboard side at about 80 feet with penetrations possible for the trained experienced divers. The top side of the wreck can be reached at about 56 feet, making a good beginner wreck diving site. While diving this wreck, divers can observe the ship in its entirety, including a mass and an angle, pilot house, companionways, and the skylights in the engine room. There are barrels left behind in the cargo holds from when attempts to raise a ship were made. Her bow has slowly been getting buried in the bottom, creating an interesting clay wall around. The stern shows the name of the ship, and, and divers have been keeping it clean from algae bloom, zebra, zebra and quagga mussels. One of the propellers and smokestacks are available for viewing at Jerry Geyer's Marina in the Milwaukee River. Overall, this is a very exci- exciting dive. Overall, this is a very exciting dive site for a dive or two or many. Um, I have a picture on their website showing the uh, ship before it went down. This was a uh, saltwater package freighter. I believe package freighter, but I know it was carrying a variety of goods. Uh, I think it had like television sets and all kinds of different electronics on it. Well, whatever electronics were back in 1956 when it went down. Went down in a collision. Uh, Although I've also heard that the hull got cut by a cable, too. I know that there was a... The... there was a barge being towed and a cable in between, and I've heard the boat went over the cable, and the cable cut the hull. I've heard different things along those lines. This one here is on this website we're talking about. Uh, she collided with the towed barge Sinclair 12 and towed the tug Sinclair Houston or Sinclair Chicago, depending upon the different different versions, and sank with a 20 by 8 foot hole in her side. Her crew of 30 were rescued by the Coast Guard cutter Hollyhock. She was scuttled while building to. Oh, okay. The scuttling was was, was a different a different comment. So apparently she was scuttled uh, during World War II and then refloated. Uh, ship was lost um, October fourteenth of eighteen fifty four. No, excuse me, nineteen fifty four. <laughs> and she's uh, just shy of four miles east of the Milwaukee Harbor mouth. Yeah, cargo was televisions and general freight. No lives were lost. But, say, this is a really fun sport dive. A lot to be seen here. Um, Vessel's completely intact. They did try to raise it a number of times. One of my favorite features of the wreck is how you uh, actually get to see Mother Nature in action. Uh, You know, there are so many, many, many boats out there which uh, will never be found because of the way that nature swallows them up. We've seen this with uh, with Max Rec. Um, Max Rec is listed on the MSRA site. Um, aren't they calling that the farmer on there? They, they have it listed on there a little bit. Um, also makes an appearance in the uh, newest addition to uh, Chris Cole's books. Um, but we, we see on Max Rec how the boat is basically sunk into the bottom of Lake Michigan, and only just the uh, top deck is, is, is visible on the rail. Um, 
there's more visible there too. You you can also see like the um, the, the windlass and the anchor and, an anchor and, a, and different things. Max Truck's actually a pretty cool dive, but you're seeing that process happening to the Prince William on a much larger boat now, where the boat sitting on the bottom now forces the current to work its way around the boat. It funnels the current, and that funneling current speeds the water up, which actually digs a trench. And the bow of the boat, the top deck is actually level with the bottom of the lake. It is actually dug enough of a trench that the bow of the boat has sunken into this hard clay bottom of the lake. Now, the stern is not sunk in so much. The stern still sticks up pretty good, but it must more likely, I guess, it's probably just the bow is in its facing into the current, and that's why it's scoring away there first. But, you know, so many of the lost ships out there, unfortunately, will never be found because they're, they're sinking in like we see here, and we can see it right here on the Prince William, who's only been down there for 60 years, and it's already sunken in substantially. But it's a, it's a very cool wreck. If you can get up there, there are a number of charters in the area. I happen to dive with uh, Great Lake Shipper Explorers off of Yitka's boat, the Molly, Molly 5. Um, I think Molly 5 is no re- relation to Prince William 5, I hope. Very cool very cool dive. Highly recommended. It sounds like, I, I mean, I'd like to hit that one. That's pretty nice. Well, and it's only a few miles offshore. You know, this is only, uh, it's not even four miles offshore. you got the beautiful Milwaukee skyline in the background. Um I mean, where else are you going to find Rex this intact, this this cool in the world? <laughs> I mean, right. uh, you want to see Rex like this in salt water? You, you're going many, many miles offshore, um, and they're not usually usually this intact. So, pretty cool but, stuff here. And the other advantage yeah, is that get a Sunday dive on that the day after go ships. Yeah, the the other there advantage is that when we have bad weather on the east side of the lake the west side tends to be sheltered mm-hmm. yeah they do have some advantages over there on the east side of the lake uh, as, as darren just mentioned uh you know because our winds generally come out of the west so we generally have good dive weather over here but we do have a lot a lot of blowout days over here and on the east side of the lake they do have a longer season just because the waves don't have, have as long to build when they're on the, that starting on that side of the lake. Uh, also, they have really nice visibility over there too, uh, and vi- the visibility is quite impressive on the east side of the lake because they get that convection current over there. The uh, wind out of the west blows the warm top water our way, but then that ends up pulling up the uh, cold deep water from further out in the lake. So you're diving, in this case, a wreck in 90 feet of water, surrounded by water which was pulled out of a much deeper part of the lake and as such is much clearer than you'd expect. I mean, I dove this in September um, a year and a half ago, and I want to say we had 60-foot visibility on it, which is pretty good for that time of year now. But the water's cold over there. Be prepared for it. Uh, Water temps those days are 40 degrees. Uh, water is substantially colder on that side of the lake, and you'll be ready for it. Bring, bring, bring your woolly bears. Sounds like something we ought to look into for a day trip or something. I've mentioned it a few times in the Mud Club about making some trips over there because uh, there are some really 
you know, cool wrecks over there, you know, and you, you don't have to go all the way to Milwaukee either. You can, there's some out of Chicago and just north of Chicago out of Racine, um, like to dive to Wisconsin. Uh, a lot of different, uh, you know, nice wrecks, which you could, you know, be there in three hours to dive. Um, just there's not a lot of folks from this part of the state that are, you know, motivated enough to, to, to go over there. So Eric is asking me on the chat room to explain how it's sunk. It's very confusing. Um, thanks. That part of the paragraph is sketchy. Well, I've heard different versions of it. You know, I, I I've heard that the boat was um, traveling across, was headed out, and that there was a uh, a boat pulling a pulling a barge, and Prince Willie ended up going over the tow cable, and that tow cable ended up cutting a hole, a, a, you know, slicing a big hole in the bottom of the boat. It went down that way. This pair, this particular website here is saying that it was sunk in a collision, that the uh, that the, the barge that was that was pulling that was pulling it hit it inside and put a large hole 20 feet by 8 feet in the side. Uh, I did not see that hole when I was down there. Um, it may be laying on that side too. I don't know. Um, hope that helps. I'm sure if you look online a little bit. Oh yeah. It's the scuttle you're talking about. Eric is now asking about the scuttle. Uh, it was scuttled earlier on intentionally and then and then re-raised. He's got it now. Okay, we're good. We're good. Yeah, I was looking at that report. I, I may have a different page than you do on that one. It talked about the, uh, the owners of the William sued Sinclair Refining Company because it was their barge for $2 million dollars and alleged that the barge was not equipped with running lights, the tug was inadequately towing it, and it, was un- it, was, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't lit, and the tow was unseaworthy and carelessly handled, uh, handled. But the Coast Guard Board of Inquiry was held and found both captains to be blamed for the accident. I do find it was interesting that uh, attempts to raise that were done in 1958, 1961, and 1965. And they said, when you're diving the uh, wreck, that you can also see the large tanks that was used in the salvage effort alongside of the wreck. Did you happen to notice those? Um, I did not notice a large tank. I did notice a lot of barrels that were around the deck. The boat is uh, mostly up. Well, no, it's actually kind of, I believe it's on its port side, probably at about a 30-degree list, I want to say. Um, no, a substantial list. Um, but no, I did not notice, uh, tanks, but just a number of barrels that were on the deck, which, uh, Yick, uh, explained to us were remnants from the salvage attempts. Well, I see the different attempts for it, but I was really curious if anybody knew how much of the cargo was actually salvaged, because I was looking at the cargo, it was printing presses, which sounded quite interesting, automobile parts, and band instruments. So I just really wonder how much of that was actually salvaged. Well, you know, this is uh, the most heavily dove wreck out of Milwaukee. This is an extremely popular wreck. In fact, uh, I'll go ahead and mention it here, that uh, I've also read that uh, this is the wreck in Lake Michigan, which has had the highest number of diver fatalities. So I guess I probably should mention, you know, Warner warn our listeners a little bit here too that uh, you know stay within your 
abilities, stay within your certifications if you dive this wreck. Don't do uh, penetrations unless you're, you're trained for it. Um, you know, keep in mind that this is a very large boat, and you can easily find yourself, you know, in an overhead environment, which, um, you know, even if you're just going down along the, uh, the port side of it, because it does lie on its port side, and all of a sudden, well, you got the big boat looming over you, and you have a problem, and you don't have direct access to the surface. Uh, you know, there have been a number of fatalities on this on this boat with divers who made poor choices. So uh, keep that in mind when you go out there. But uh, you know, be safe, play it smart, and you'll be rewarded. This is a very cool wreck to dive. So there you have it. Very cool. Thank you. My pleasure. And once again, we'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have uh, Eric showed up. We had uh, guest number four, which I think was, was that Sam and who's out there? Uh, that, that's Nelson, who was uh, guest number four. That's Nelson. Okay. And um, if you want to follow us, you can visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. You can follow us on Twitter. At Scuba Obsessed, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. And like to thank all our Patreon supporters, especially Vanessa Homiak for being the Dive Nitrox level. If you want to be like Vanessa, you can do so by visiting our website and clicking over to our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and $3 or more will get you advanced show notes and other member-only benefits. So thank you once again. Also, Need to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another year. WRVO Radio, Reno Viola Outdoors Network. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, they've got something 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, Mac, you got anything you want to plug? Uh, nothing really to plug other than uh, the 25th will be here soon. That will be our world underwater, and again... <coughs> Around that high noon time, you should see some muddies down there in Chicago. So, looking forward to seeing people, maybe. How about you, Kevin? Well, I want to encourage our listeners to uh, use your local libraries, support them, vote for them in the millages, uh, keep, the, keep these guys around. There's all kinds of information in the libraries you're not going to find online. Also, use your local dive shops. We all like to get that deal online, but, you, but those deals online aren't going to fill your scuba tanks or service your regulators. And also, what, like next, to, next week we have the guest? Yeah, I'd like to encourage the listeners to come back next week, too, because we are going to have a very special guest. We are going to have Jitka Hanikaba. Her name it looks like it looks like Jitka, but it's spelled with a J, but the J, of course, is silent because she's uh, Czechoslovakian, and very proud of it, by the way. Uh, she will be our guest next week. She is a Women's Hall of Fame diver. She is uh, a rebreather diver, drives a... Uh, Interspace Systems Megalodon, as I recall. Uh, she's discovered a number of shipwrecks, including the Alice Wilds that was found last year. Um, she's been on many, many, many of the, of the deeper wreck dives in the Great Lakes. She uh, manages a charter based out of Milwaukee. Her boat's the Molly V. Um, Going to be very pleased to have her as our guest next week. Very good. We're glad to have her on. I'm sure she'll be a be a fabulously entertaining dive, uh, you know, guest. To be great. Great. Well, are you ready for that time of the show? Ever ready? Would it, would it make a difference if I said no? Not really. <laughs> no. You're, okay. Well, go ahead. <laughs> 
Bring it on. Jeff had six kids and was very proud of his achievement. He was so proud of himself for years he called his wife Anita, mother of six, in spite of her regular objections. One evening in their retirement years, they go to a party and it's getting late and Jeff is ready to go home. He wants to find out if Anita is ready to leave as well. Jeff bellows at the top of his voice, shall we go home, mother of six? Anita, greatly irritated by Jeff's lack of discretion over so many years, yells back at him, anytime you're ready, father of four. Oh, Ooh, yeah, hello, Bob. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I made some interesting discussions at the dinner table. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, maybe, maybe a few uh, pull-outs from the DNA test. <laughs> so, on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. Recording has been completed. That's it. Coolness. Another one's in the bag. <laughs>